This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer, Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 38, recorded on January 31st, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my co-hosts, Rob and Dennis. Hi, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Great. Good to have you. And we have a new co-host today with us, Dr. Mark Rinaldi. Welcome, Mark. Hello. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Mark has uh, some interest in the topic of today's discussion, so we've uh, asked him to join us for today. Today, we have a special guest with us visiting here from the University of Miami, and as he is being well reminded, it's the middle of winter, and maybe he should have thought differently about coming up this year, but welcome, Dr. John Goldberg. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. Yeah, thanks for being here. So, Dr. Goldberg is, is here to share some of his experiences with us in Phase 1 Uh, clinical trials for pediatric cancer patients. He is the director of the Pediatric Oncology Early Phase Clinical Trials Program at the University of Miami and the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, where he is a clinical assistant professor. And he's uh, been there for, what, six years now or so? Six years in May. Great. Um, Can you tell us where you were before that and how you sort of were brought up in, in medicine, where your training was and your how you got your interests. Okay, so uh, I'm a native of, of the Boston area, and uh, early on in my in my uh, education, I had the pleasure of working in Dr. Lee Nadler's laboratory, and that was my first exposure to cancer research. It was also my first exposure to immunotherapy. Uh, he's a, a noted uh, lymphoma f- specialist as well as a, an immunotherapy researcher at the Dana-Farber and I kind of took that experience with me. And uh, So that was when you were a fellow? That was actually when I was in college. Oh, college. I worked okay. in his lab during the summers. And uh, uh, I was at the University of Chicago for college, but went home for uh, for the summers. And, uh, and uh, I was hooked after that. I knew I wanted to do oncology research for the families and for the science. But I also knew that I really liked working with children. So wanted to make that my niche. Oh, that's great. So you identified that relatively early on. Most people coming out of college have no idea what they want to do <laughs> the rest of their life. So then where, tell us about fellowship and beyond. So uh, for fellowship, I was at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute uh, in Children's Hospital Boston, the joint program. After my clinical year, I went to the laboratory of David Fisher. Uh, David is a uh, pediatric oncologist who was studying melanoma in the laboratory so my angle was to understand transcription biology in a particular subset of uh, pediatric tumors, uh, including alveolar soft heart sarcoma and clear cell sarcoma. These are tumors that are uh, characterized by abnormalities of the MIT tumor, uh, MIT transcription factor family. Um, and because of their shared biology, we thought they might have shared vulnerability to immunotherapy uh, like melanoma does, even though it was not an immunotherapy lab. That's how I kind of then kind of professionally as a as a investigator sort of transitioned to doing immunotherapy. 
it's funny because so I was thinking about working in David's lab when I was there 10 years before you. So I've sort of got this image of this parallel universe where you went there. And uh, so I could have been you. <laughs> but uh, so that's it. So, yeah, David's a great guy, great lab, done a lot of seminal work in that area. Yeah. Um, and then and then so what did you so you stayed in Boston actually for a few mm -hmm. years as an instructor. Yeah. Is that mainly to finish your research projects or? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I think. uh it's such a big program, and the goal really is to develop a niche and to develop as an investigator in some way, uh, like many of the other big programs. And it just it takes a long time to get to that point as an academic pediatric oncologist. So uh, for myself, I had started uh, one GVAX vaccine trial, and I had started a trial with the adult sarcoma group of, uh, of a drug called Tavantinib, which is, I think, now in uh, phase one in kids. But is a CMAT inhibitor that we thought would be helpful for these tumors for some mechanistic biology that we also were aware of. That was kind of me getting used to early phase clinical trials and kind of getting my, my hands dirty and, and learning about the process. When the time came as, as those trials sort of matured, I looked for what I wanted and, and I wanted to, to build a program in collaboration with immunotherapy people and, and uh, clinicians. And there was an opportunity at the University of Miami to come do that. When you were learning these uh, early phase trials and so forth, was that just trial by fire? Uh, trial by fire. One, but yeah, <laughs> no formal training in that, no... Um, no formal training. It was an unusual set of circumstances. Because I was working in a pediatric oncology lab and I was a clinician, everyone in the department assumed that I could take care of kids with melanoma. So by default, I became the pediatric melanoma doctor at Children's, and uh, mostly that involved uh, doing uh, doing consults on kids with Spitz and Evi, um, and trying to talk them out of having more surgery. It, and that was interrupted by occasional terrifying episodes of kids with full-blown metastatic melanoma that uh, wasn't amenable to therapy either. As a result, I kind of sat in with our immunotherapy group quite frequently and basically learned at their feet about how they did immunotherapy trials and how they did early phase clinical trials uh, and did a trial with them. So uh, it was certainly trial by fire. It, it wasn't really formal training, but I did have people looking over me and, and mentoring me in that process. So what attracted you to Miami besides the weather and South Beach? <laughs> well, it was a, a pretty cool opportunity. Uh, Julio Barreto is the chief there, and uh, he's a very thoughtful guy and uh, was able to explain how we could be an adjunct to the community. There are several pediatric oncology groups in the area, and his goal as the university leader in pediatric oncology was never to compete with them for patients, but it was to provide services to the patients who needed them. And one of the services that was needed was access to early phase clinical trials because it really was nothing else at the time. He had joined Tackle. Uh, I hadn't thought about being a leukemia investigator Just at that for time. Our, our, to explain Tackle briefly yeah. for our listeners. Therapeutic advances in childhood leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, originally, it was just leukemia, but uh, now it's lymphoma, so it's TACL. Uh, it is a uh, national phase one organization for heme malignancies. Uh, it's actually an international organization at this point. We and, and Ohio State also belong to this organization. The goal of that group is to promote early phase clinical trials in hematologic malignancies, especially leukemia, but not exclusively, so that we can get, get leads on uh, interesting uh, therapies for 
hemolignancy is faster. So kind of on that lines of looking at things, you described lots of different drug companies and drugs that you evaluated. I mean, how do you go about identifying what drug to pursue? And do mm-hmm. you have some sort of like flow charge or process of elimination? Or how do, you, how do you decide what to go for? Because I can imagine, you yeah. know, one thing you might go for might not pan out. I wish that we had such a great access to drugs that we could just have a flow chart and say, I'm going to pick A, B, C, and D. My colleague at Moffitt Cancer Center who does the Sunshine Project with me, Damon Reed, he does have a flow chart. He has like a whole page of or several pages of drugs that are out there that might be plausible that maybe we could get our hands on. But by and large, what it really involves is kind of going through uh, presentations that I've seen at ASCO, presentations at other meetings, learning about clinical trials that have happened with adults, because unfortunately, we, we still are, you know, mostly have to go off signals from adults, and then trying to figure out if I have a connection to the particular maker uh, or sponsor for the, for the agent, and then just pursuing the ones that are out there. Some of the medical science liaisons in our area know about me and my interest in drug development. So they'll just come by and say, this is our pipeline talk. This is what our company is working on. But the hit rate in pediatric oncology is pretty low. And really, I'd say, despite the number of LOIs that I've written, the only two that have really hit have been the Tavantinib and the uh, the Panabinostat at this point. You know, there are other possibilities that may, may come up. Well, so for those two, how many LOIs have you had to write? And what's the filter? I've probably, I think it's at least like 10 to 1 or something, yeah. you know. You know, That's an important lesson for yeah. a junior yeah. investigator. And the person who taught me that lesson, who I haven't mentioned, is actually Mark Kieran at the university at, at Dana-Farber. Um, Mark is the director of pediatric neuro-oncology there. And when I left to go to the University of Miami, I'd gotten a lot of advice from people, but Mark was the one I went to for advice on how am I actually going to build the program. And he's the one kind of who gave me the blueprint of select a couple of IITs, try to get a few uh, trials that pay more uh, more for the services, and then uh, try to join with some other groups. Um, as a Mark and I were first year fellows together, so that's a good shout out. Yeah, yeah, and and it, he is a very uh, persistent man, and and when he told me that it was going to take that sort of uh, hit rate, I I understood that it was a uh, you know settle in for the long haul. Yeah. <laughs> And real quick, you just mentioned the Sunshine Project. Can you give us a little background on what that is? Absolutely. Uh, the Sunshine Project is uh, based in Moffitt uh, Cancer Center. It is a pediatric oncology phase one group. It's mostly but not exclusively oriented towards sarcoma research, and it's funded by the uh, Pediatric Cancer Foundation. Uh, their website is fastercure.org. And they're sole purpose is to fund pediatric phase one clinical trials through this group. Uh, Moffitt's like the the headquarters for it, uh, but it's spread out around Florida and actually around uh, the country now. There's 10 total sites. How much does it cost them a year to run that? Do you know? I think their budget is definitely several hundred thousand dollars and may approach a million dollars a year. But honestly, right now, it's, we haven't maxed them out in terms of their, their uh, financial uh, support. That's Very, all raised by philanthropy. It's all raised by philanthropy. It's yeah. mostly all raised in Tampa. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I go to their. I go to every fundraiser they ask me to because they've just been so incredibly supportive, and they really get it. Their foundation, their board knows what we're trying to do, and they know that it takes time to do these mm-hmm. trials. You know, just a practical question with respect to implementation. You can talk about LOIs. You can talk about consortiums. You can talk about reimbursement and lists of drugs to try, to trial in early phases, but it doesn't mean anything unless you can actually enroll 
young patients in early phase clinical trials. And what we saw in the lecture that you just gave was um, you have a very good track record of enrolling mm -hmm. patients, young patients, in these early phase trials, which is oftentimes a barrier at other institutions. And I'm wondering what strategies you've used to um, achieve the kind of enrollment success you've had. I have those same problems. Uh, it's not easy to get little kids on trial. Uh, you know, the, the patient whose example I gave was uh, barely able to swallow the medications. And uh, one of the things I've uh, discussed uh, during one of my earlier meetings today is it really takes brute force, I think, with a lot of these things. Uh, in this particular case, this was a 17-month-old boy. The tablets for that trial are kind of papery experimental tablets. I don't know. I don't think you guys have enrolled anyone yet on that study here, uh, so that you haven't had the pleasure of looking at these medications. But they basically dissolve the second they touch your tongue. So they hear these parents with this kid who was on hospice holding his jaw open, trying to shove these pills in his mouth. And it really took uh, me kind of sitting at the bedside, the nurse sitting at the bedside, you know, rubbing the parents back while they rub the kids back to try to support them through this. Because in their minds, this was the only thing mm -hmm. keeping their son alive. So I, I think that it's really on the individual level, it requires just an incredible attention to detail. And I think that's what separates pediatric oncologists from other types of investigators that we we know that if you want to enroll patients on trials, you really have to work at it. But from an institutional standpoint, we've had a great cancer center uh, uh, leadership effort. I mean, they, they've made it very clear that it's important that we enroll children. They've supported us financially with uh, IRB fees, uh, things like getting things open at the research pharmacy. St. Baldrick's has also helped me with funding for those kind of, those sort of intangibles that you can't, you can't like, get an R01 to pay for every IRB fee that you ever need, you you need some sort of uh, source of funds for those. So I would definitely say that St. Baldrick's and our Cancer Center have kind of stepped up for those kind of things. Yeah, it's terrific that you have all that infrastructure support because it's yeah. really key to be able to do this. And, you know, large centers need to be able to um, study novel therapies and, and enroll patients on these early phase trials. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, as you said. Yeah. Now, I wanted to touch on um, a couple of other things that we had talked about earlier today, and one of them was um, vaccine trials uh, in pediatric patients. And I'll, I'll start at kind of a 30,000-foot level, and then maybe we can narrow things in a little bit as well. You know, one of the questions that I've heard in the past is it seems like there are specific pediatric malignancies that tend to be more amenable to immunotherapies than others. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that. Is it, is it simply those are the ones that have been of interest and we've been able to develop targets and strategies? Or should this technology for vaccine therapy be exploitable across the pediatric malignancies uh, spectrum? I suspect that it's it's both. I mean, I, I you know, melanoma is the cancer for which immunotherapy has been the most successful, possibly followed by renal cell carcinoma. Mm -hmm. But that hasn't limited the fact that some of these new techniques are showing promise in other types of cancer. So I think that our immunogenic cancers, whatever they are, synovial sarcoma is one that comes to mind, but I think that they, they may be easier to study in these modalities. But if you look at the uh, benefit of some of the PD-1 inhibitors, mm -hmm. they've actually shown benefit in lung cancer, which is not something I think of as uh, typically immunogenic. Uh, in fact, some of them have shown the most benefit in former smokers <laughs> with lung cancer who are considered the ones who never benefit from anything. So I think when we find the right compounds and the right combination, it's possible that immunotherapy can benefit a large number of patients. We'll just, we'll just have to see how it plays out, but I by no means would uh, 
give up on things that are less immunogenic. I think there's so much more to learn about this whole immunotherapy field. You know, I think the we had the era of chemotherapy, which we've sort of maxed out on. Mm-hmm. The era of targeted therapy, we're in the middle of it, we, and we do have a lot to learn, but it really seems like immunotherapies are, mm-hmm. are with the CAR T-cells, et cetera, they're really mm-hmm. starting to come to fruition. Uh, I know people that have spent their entire careers on developing that, so I'm sure it's gratifying to yeah. at least start seeing some responses in some FDA-approved drugs in that arena. What do you think is the next... Um, major steps in, in getting these sort of therapies into the pediatric realm, and what are the barriers to do that? So there's a lot of interest right now in drug development in general in, the, in these PD-1 or uh, PD ligand inhibitors. I guess just for our audience, Pro- explain P- PD-1. PD-1 is programmed uh, cell death 1, and there's also a PD-2. And, that, and that's a, mo- a receptor that's upregulated on a T-cell. And if you stimulate it, your T cell usually dies, but it, it certainly will will not function properly. And uh, there's a strong body of evidence now that tumors upregulate the ligands against that and contribute, and that contributes to T cells not attacking tumor cells. Uh, they get uh, deactivated that way. Uh, there's a term T cell exhaustion, which refers to uh, things having uh, stimulated through uh, some of those pathways. Recently, uh, inhibitors of that pathway have been shown and actually been FDA approved for the treatment of metastatic melanoma. Uh, some of these, uh, and and as I referred to earlier, some of these are the drugs that are actually uh, benefiting lung cancer patients and other types of cancer patients, which is really remarkable, showing that despite Despite how we all thought the immune system was only important in melanoma, or maybe that's an overstatement, we thought the immune system was very important in melanoma, it clearly has a role in some of these other cancers that by blocking the way the tumors are impairing the immune system, we're able to restore an immune rejection of those tumors. That would predispose that there is some immune recognition think so. of antigens. So again, that comes back to which tumors have very immunogenic yeah. peptides on them. What about, so you've also been touching on, in your talk anyway, to us about epigenetics and epigenetic mm-hmm. modifiers. We haven't talked about that yet. That's sort of another whole area of new novel therapies. Can you just mention that briefly? It's, it seems to me uh, that our clinical knowledge of epigenetic modifiers, and certainly in pediatrics, our clinical experience with epigenetic modifiers, lags somewhat behind what is being discovered in the laboratory. So if you go to talk on Ewing sarcoma or other tumors that for which uh, transcriptional regulation is important, you'll hear about all these different complexes involved in uh, epigenetic effects uh, that, that can bind with uh, histones, uh, things like DOC1 inhibitors that uh, uh, are being explored. But we don't we, we still have HDAC inhibitors that haven't even gone through the clinical trials process that potentially could have efficacy. So, you know, loosely stated, epigenetics involve heritable changes in a cell, in this case cancer cells, that are not coding. So uh, methylation is usually what we think of, uh, areas of the, of the chromatin being methylated impair gene expression or manipulate gene expression to the cancer's benefit, and reversing that may... Uh, help make cancers more susceptible to other therapies. And I, I think there are a lot of good compounds for that, but they haven't been tested in kids. And, and it's possible we can target more specifically, but I'm not sure it's going to be necessary or not. And you've been developing some biomarkers to look at, uh, predictive biomarkers, I think, to look at whether HDAC inhibitors will be effective in any particular 
mm-hmm. cancer. And that, I think, speaks to the importance of mm-hmm. developing something that can identify the right patient population to mm-hmm. use with any of these kinds of treatments. Yes. Are there any particular research projects you're working on now or trials that's sort of your focus of interest for the future? And kind of where is that going now? What are we going to see in the next couple of years coming out of Miami? I would be very excited to do some of the follow-up trials using uh, panabinostat, potentially in combination therapy. It depends a little bit on the direction that the manufacturer, the developer takes. But I, I feel with the recent myeloma data, uh, showing that that drug uh, may have a future that I'm, I'm and that on. is one of the HDAC inhibitors, and that's one of the HDAC inhibitors. Sorry, uh, panavinostat is a is an HDAC inhibitor that we're studying. I think that that's that has some promise. There's also the possibility to combine one of these drugs, one of these HDAC inhibitors, with kind of classic chemotherapy for sarcoma. That's one of the big unmet needs in my mind, and a lot of people's minds is. So what can you do to make sarcoma therapy work better in kids with cancer? I think one that's really near and dear to my heart is what can you do with patients who don't respond well to neoadjuvant chemotherapy who have osteosarcoma? Mm-hmm. Um, COG has tried a variety of things, or, and a lot of people have tried things, but we haven't been able to show that intensifying therapy after surgery for patients with poor necrosis has an effect. Right. And I'd love to find uh, one of these compounds that could perhaps make the tumors more sensitive to chemotherapy that we can add to that uh, space. So I think there's a possibility that epigenetic modifiers may have a role there, but I, I that that's more of kind of a gut feeling. It just all takes so much time. It, it takes so much time. And, yeah, was- and so many well-meaning people working really, really hard trying to find those answers. It, just on the time frame, so your tackle study on panabinostat opened in what year was it? Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. And was you just got you have four patients now, right? You said on the lymphoma arm, arm lymphoma. we have four patients. On the leukemia arm, uh, technically nine mm-hmm. patients who've counted who've been valuable, but there's been something like fifteen patients enrolled, mm-hmm. and that's because the trial design is is tricky. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a single agent oral drug for patients with acute leukemia, and some of those patients blasted off during induction. Yeah. And we're taken off, but that has been really slow. And, yeah. and it's been a lesson, honestly, for tackle that if you're going to do a study in pediatric lymphoma, uh, you better make it as inclusive as possible. And uh, yeah. maybe you should do something else because, you know, be in- include another group or do it internationally because pediatric lymphoma is yeah. not that common in, in recurrence. It's extremely uncommon. And not that doing yeah. international studies is very easy either. No, it's yeah. not. It's not. But but Tackle, one of the great things about Tackle is the leadership does have these connections with international groups. People like Jim Whitlock mm-hmm. knows the, uh, because he's in the Canadian site anyway, mm-hmm. he knows the Europeans very well and is uh, a great kind of leader in terms of collaborating with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that just goes to the point that it takes a long time. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a combination of institutions, probably internationally, to really get numbers in some of these trials and some of these drugs to really show that it's having an effect. Absolutely. And as hard as it is to get these trials started, it does add that sort of extra responsibility of making sure that it's a good trial to start with. That you're, mm-hmm. When you get the answer at the end, that you're going to be able to do something with it. Yeah. yeah. Right. You have any other closing statements you'd like to make in terms of lessons learned or advice uh, for junior investors? There, well, I think I think uh, you touched on it uh, at the beginning that it takes a long time to get these type of projects going, and uh, 
uh, even when you think you're being successful, you realize suddenly four years have passed and you're just at your last dose level on a trial. So it, it's something you just have to recognize from the start. It's going to take a while. It's important yeah, to know that and to brace for it and also to understand that in terms of promotion at an academic institution, mm-hmm. there needs to be productivity. But, mm-hmm. but uh, perhaps these projects can be sliced into mm-hmm. pieces uh, where you're collecting samples, yes. doing biomarker staining, yeah. get a paper out of that, for example, and then yeah. it doesn't have to be all this sort of the grandiose clinical trial. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I appreciate your being here today. It's been a fl- pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. And Robin, thanks for being mm-hmm. here. Thank you. And Mark, welcome and Thank thanks, you. and hope you can join us again. I'd love to. Thank you to Victor Aguilar, our sound engineer today, who's helped us out. If any of you listeners are listening to this episode in the future and uh, would like to send us a comment or a question, please email it to twippo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast. You can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And as always, thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are founding co-directors for Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.